Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. I'm Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder of Fin. We're glad to have you back. On this episode, we talk about COVID-19 and the counter-licit finance regime, risks, policy tensions, and opportunities. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast. We're going to talk to you today about the COVID-19 crisis and the effects on the counter-liquid finance regime as we see it. With us today are two of our great experts at FIN, two former Treasury officials and vice presidents within the, the company, Gail Fuller and Eric Lorber, well-known to listeners. And I know Gail Fuller has a fan club emerging out there because of her phenomenal radio voice. So Eric and Gail, welcome back. Thanks, Juan. Thanks, Juan. Um, a lot of us have been doing a lot of thinking about how this crisis is affecting the counter-listed finance regime. And, and first and foremost, I hope listeners are safe and well. Your family, uh, families and colleagues are, are safe and well. And, and certainly we hope this uh, podcast brings you not just uh, something to think about, but also some comfort in, in this time of dislocation. So let me, let me start, start off by saying that. But we've been doing a lot of thinking. There's been a lot of webinars, uh, certainly publications about how the current crisis is affecting the anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing regime, how it's affecting sanctions, how it's affecting the world of fraud and illicit finance. And we want to talk to you about um, how we're viewing the world and how our great experts, Gail and Eric, are viewing the world. And so we're going to have a discussion in three parts. We're going to talk about what risks and vulnerabilities we're seeing in the environment and how to think about that and how to classify those risks. We want to talk about some of the policy tensions or issues that uh, that we see playing out in a, in a variety of ways in the environment. And finally, we want to talk about some of the opportunities uh, that this uh, current environment uh, allows for. How, how should we be thinking about the future of the regime? What should be accelerated? Um, there's no question that a more dislocated, distant uh, environment creates challenges for the counter-listed financing regime. We know that uh, the greater flow of capital into the system to the tune of trillions of dollars is putting stress on the system. Um, and the reliance on digital tools and uh, digital connectivity is creating opportunities for bad guys, but also opportunities for thinking about how we do business better. Um, and so that's going to be our discussion today. And again, Gail and Eric are going to walk us through these issues. So Gail, let me, let me start with you. How do you see the risk environment, the vulnerabilities as they're playing out currently? Thanks, Juan. So I think when I think about risk, I really think about it in terms of the confluence of threats and of vulnerabilities. And so I'll kind of look at the threat side first and then talk about what we're seeing on vulnerabilities. On the threat side, there's been a lot of guidance, as you mentioned before, kind of put out from FinCEN, from DOJ, from international bodies that are really warning about the types of scams that we're seeing related to the crisis. Because unfortunately, anytime there's a crisis, there are always bad actors who are going to seek to take advantage of the situation. 
And the types of things we're specifically seeing on that front are, you know, fraudulent tests, cures, or vaccines that people claim that they have, um, non-delivery scams, and then price gouging and hoarding related schemes. And then another important one to talk about is, of course, cyber related, because a lot of these have a cyber component to them. We're all working from home right now. Everyone's spending a lot more time online, including our parents and grandparents, who are maybe not as used to spending as much time online. And you know, anything in email that tends to have a COVID-19 hook is being used as a phishing scam. There's also been a lot of scrutiny on scams related to the economic assistance programs, of course. When you talk about, as you did, the trillions of dollars really flowing into the system, that's obviously something that bad actors are looking at as a source of opportunity for themselves. So the, the Paycheck Protection Program in the U.S. and equivalent programs elsewhere in the world are really a vulnerability in some ways as well. So I was just going to say, Gail, on the on the cyber side, it's a it's a really interesting, important point. Not only are um, businesses, individuals, um, commercial entities using more digital tools, but you ha just have much more volume and new actors, as, as you said, parents, grandparents, um, people who wouldn't otherwise have been interacting commercially, financially, or having to, or determining that they like to. And that's creating vulnerabilities, especially in a period of social engineering, where a lot of the cyber actors, uh, the malicious cyber actors out there have uh, perfected the use of social engineering as a way of engaging in, in business fraud and, and other uh, hacking activities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the vulnerabilities overall kind of fall into two categories. There's these ones that are sort of new and related specifically to the crisis, which are related to the things you were talking about, Juan, and from the perspective of a financial institution related to, for example, having all of your employees working at home or having fewer employees working because of illness or because of people who need to take care of family members or homeschool their children. Um, so that's creating vulnerabilities. But then there's this whole other category that I think we need to unpack, which is these longstanding systemic vulnerabilities that have always been there and are persisting in the crisis and are kind of exacerbated by it. And in that category, I would put vulnerabilities related to the ability or I guess inability to really verify the identity of a customer in a non-face-to-face -face scenario. Um, I'd also put weaknesses in beneficial ownership transparency in that category. And some of the challenges we've talked about in a lot of our previous podcasts about the transaction monitoring systems that are really rigid, kind of inflexible, not great at applying risk-based approach and producing a ton of false positives that are clogging the system and eating up even more limited resources. Gail, a really important point you make there about the, these embedded vulnerabilities systemically that, that are exacerbated or highlighted in a period of stress like this. And, and I, I want to come back to that in the second part of our discussion as we talk about some of the policy tensions, because I think you, you've just highlighted um, really neatly um, what, what that looks like and, and what we should be thinking about. Eric, what do you, what do you see, uh, feeding off of what Gail has laid out, what do you see as the kind of the risks, vulnerabilities, threats in the environment? Thanks, Juan. Yeah. Uh, building off of Gail's uh, really excellent points on this, I mean, one of the, the bigger risks I see in, in the environment is not sort of in the context of specific efforts at fraud or specific illicit activity in the in, in US related to PPE, but actually deals more with uh, sort of the supply chain issues that are really being put uh, put in the sort of the foremost of everyone's minds right now, particularly related to 
medical equipment and medical services um, coming out of China. And as many I know uh, of, the, of our listeners have been paying close attention to, you know, obviously the tensions between the United States and China over COVID-19 have really ramped up, um, certainly in the last month or so. And there have been all sorts of initiatives, particularly in the U.S. Congress, but also within the administration, to focus on the repositioning of supply chains, supply chains related to medical devices and medical equipment and medical supplies, but more generally as well. I mean, you've got Japan um, trying to repatriate supply chains coming in um, from China. You have pieces of legislation in Congress right now that try to uh, re, uh, repatriate domestic or repatriate supply chains to domestic markets that were once in China. And the reason I, I sort of flagged this as a risk um, is because to a certain extent, any effort um, to, to, to shift supply chain significantly introduces um, uncertainty about who those suppliers are, right? So, you know, there are questions that are going to have to be answered and addressed as to if you're shifting supply chain substantially from the Chinese market or Chinese manufacturers to Vietnam or to the Indonesian manufacturing market, who are those new counterparties that you're dealing with? Who are those third-party vendors? And how do you go about ensuring that, you know, on a quick basis when you're trying to do a fairly fast supply chain shift that the actors that you're now going to be working with um, are, are legitimate and um, and above board. And I think this is something that um, many companies here in the United States are having to deal with as they sort of think through what they can do to reflect this new political reality that is in large part driven, though not entirely, but in large part driven, um, I think, by the by the heightening tensions in the U.S.-China relationship due to COVID. Fascinating, Eric. And I know we'll get into this a bit when we talk uh, about some sanctions issues uh, on the policy side. What I find, find interesting about what, what you and Gail have alluded to, there's, there's a dimension of a root cause here, a root element of the regime that has to do with uh, being able to identify customers, counterparties, um, uh, you know, supply chain partners, um, and ultimately, again, as we've said over and over again, this is about how we think about and how we construct uh, systems of transparency and accountability and traceability. That, that's yeah. fundamentally what's at play uh, in, in what you've described and I think in, in a bit of what Gail was describing in terms of the systemic vulnerabilities that still persist. That's right. And, and Juan, if you don't mind, can I jump yeah. in and add another point to this? Because I think it is it is important here. What I just described was you know, what we sort of think of as real risk, right? So the risk that if you're shifting a supply chain to a new third-party vendor, that that third-party vendor may not be above board. They may be a sanctioned party or they may be, uh, you know, um, a criminal actor, what, what have you. But in addition to that real risk, I think there is very clear regulatory risk here as well because, and my folks, uh, my audience folks on the line who specialize in sanctions know this, this particularly well, over the last few years, OFAC has really honed in on supply chain relationships and focused enforcement activity um, where U.S. companies did not have sufficient due diligence processes and compliance programs in place to address supply chain risks. And so you're seeing this confluence where all of a sudden you're having you know, increased real risk because of shifting supply chains, while at the same time you also know that U.S. enforcement agencies, regulatory agencies, are focused on the integrity of these supply chains to make sure that they're not infiltrated by illicit actors. So there's actually a good amount of new risk, I think, that's bubbled up in this space. 
Interesting, interesting. And, and Eric, I know you do have a, a devoted set of disciples on the sanction side, so this is good. This is good. Um, let's let's shift to to you know you've already started taking us there, Eric and Gail, on the some of the policy tensions, and I want to talk about sort of two dimensions of this. One is um, the tensions we're seeing um, from within um, the world of authorities. That is to say. The, the different views on how to manage risk in this environment and how that's playing out with advice and uh, statements coming from various authorities, not just in the United States, but around the world. And then secondly, how some of the uh, pre-existing policy tensions that were emerging, and we talk about this a lot. We, we hosted a, a conference in London in September with Rusi to talk precisely around some of these policy tensions that were emerging Especially in the context of new technologies, um, you know how these how these policy tensions are playing out, right? You've got the the policy tensions of the need for greater inclusion, financial inclusion, and uh, especially with uh, capital flowing out to the tune of trillions of dollars. But you also need a system that is assuring that there is transparency and accountability, and that the anti money laundering principles are applied. You've got a need to have very flexible uh, risk management, risk-based systems, but a system that isn't really well-tuned to do that from a regulatory perspective or even within uh, banks or, or regulated institutions. And then as, as you both were alluding to, you know, how, do, how do we think about the use of digital identification, how that evolves for purposes of natural person rules and, 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 and how that plays out in practice uh, for institutions that are just trying to verify uh, what a new customer may look like, what a new vendor, what a new supplier uh, looks like, and, and how do you do that at distance? And so th there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I want us to get to how you're seeing some of these policy tensions emerging and, and, and how our listeners should think about them. Mm -hmm. Gail, let's go back to you on, on how you're, you're viewing that. So there's definitely, like you said, a, a ton to unpack in there. There's the digital identity piece. There's kind of the need for innovation and compliance technology and the implementation of really a true risk-based approach. Um, but for right now, I kind of want to climb on the beneficial ownership soapbox a little bit, um, and hopefully I can make Chip proud. But... Please do. I think Chip's going to be so happy when he listens to this. Oh, gosh, I can only hope so. But <laughs> yeah, so the, the topic of beneficial ownership, I mean, it's one that so many of us at Finn have been focused on just for years uh, during our time at government, and Chip Ponzi in particular. Um, but it's a really huge issue, and it's it's an area where the United States has really fallen behind the rest of the world, which is a shame. Um, I know it's tough to think about really making big policy changes when we're in the midst of a crisis, but I also think in a lot of ways it makes sense to take the opportunities to learn from the situation and really think about how we can set up systems that are more resilient and emerge stronger from this crisis. And ultimately, I think beneficial ownership is part of that. Obviously, the CDD rule that came out a few years back, you know, it puts the onus on banks entirely um, to identify and verify the beneficial ownership of their customers. But our system in the U.S. right now does not ensure that beneficial ownership information is collected at the time a company is formed, which has always been a problem. And it's becoming even more pronounced as a problem right now, because in the current environment, there are companies that are approaching new lenders um, to establish a relationship and gain access to relief funds that they need. And banks are put in this really challenging position of having to really quickly dig into what is the beneficial ownership information to figure out if this new prospective customer is 
legitimately in need, or if it's some newly formed shell company engaged in one of the frauds that we talked about before, because FinCEN did flag in some of their recent guidance that one of the red flags is newly formed companies, which kind of, to me, screams shell companies. Um, you know, the only alternative for the banks is to just turn people away. And unfortunately, we've been seeing that. And, you know, this really just shouldn't be this hard. Uh, questions about company ownership shouldn't be a factor in constraining our ability to get help to businesses that need it. And so I think there's a real argument to be made that beneficial ownership issues, transparency just need to be fixed in the United States right now. Yeah, and Gail, as we've discussed, even in the CFIUS context, this plays out in all sorts of ways that are uh, central now to public policy debate. Um, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. And he said it very, very neatly. So, uh, so appreciate that. Eric, what do you think about not just the beneficial ownership issues that Gail's raising, but but other policy issues that are front of mind for you? Yeah, thanks, Juan. Um, I, I, I agree that there is indeed a tension um, that exists even within, for example, OFAC and in, maybe in the sanctions space more broadly um, between, you know, on the one hand, uh, the desire, and I think the appropriately um, placed desire to allow for a certain degree of flexibility, given what, everything that's going on right now with COVID and, and the need to sort of figure out what the compliance framework, particularly from a sanctions perspective, looks like. And on the other hand, this sort of continued increasing focus on raising the bar on compliance expectations. Um, and they, they do sit in attention. And let, let me give you just an example of, of each. So the first, um, on, the, on the first hand about flexibility, OFAC has come out and said, um, I think in, in a, helpful, a helpful way, that um, if a company needs to reallocate some of its sanctions compliance resources because of COVID-19 related uh, resource constraints, it can do so, uh, you know, along the lines of a risk-based approach. And if there is a, an apparent sanctions violation, OFAC will take that, take that you know, shift into account uh, when thinking about you know, a potential enforcement action or a penalty or whatever, uh, whatever action OFAC may decide to take. So on the one hand, there's this signaling that, hey, we understand COVID is, is requiring a change or could require a change in how you're thinking about and allocating resources for compliance. But on the other hand, as I mentioned, there are increasing expectations from OFAC and other enforcement agencies related to sanctions compliance. And here, I'm actually going to bring in a topic which you know seems like it may be a little bit left field for COVID-19, but I think is, is pretty germane to this. And that's the new sanctions maritime guidance released by Treasury, State, and the Coast Guard um, just last week, which is a 35-page document which lays out in, in really great detail for entities operating in the maritime sector what OFAC and, and State Department and Coast Guard's expectations of an effective compliance program in this space will be. And anyone who's read that guidance knows that it's a, a very substantial increase in, in what these expectations are. I mean, talking about things like getting verified passports um, and photo IDs um, uh, of individual beneficial owners and um, doing what's considered to be sort of continuous monitoring in certain situations um, of the position of ships where there may be some degree of suspicion that uh, that the ship may be engaged in ship-to-ship -ship transfers or turning off and on AIS transponders. 
And so the reason I raise this is because you can see the tension pretty clearly. On the one hand, OFAC is saying, listen, during COVID-19, if you need to reallocate your sanctions resources, that's okay, and we understand that. But at the same time, you're also seeing you know, the same regulatory and enforcement agencies saying, hey, by the way, in this particular space anyway, everybody else has to do all of these you know, significantly new and, and fairly, you know, fairly onerous, um, or, or it sh maybe not should, but should think about uh, uh, using um, and, and following these new uh, expectations and these guidelines. So it's just this interesting tension that's going on even within the same, within the same kind of sphere. Yeah. No, and, and and it's a great point about the the shipping advisory, Eric, because it it not only underscores where the trend was headed in terms of greater focus on the maritime industry and sector as a whole, but it, it there's so much pressure on supply chains now and the and the transparency and visibility of those supply chains that to your point earlier, this this simply heightens the risk. Uh, that that sits in the environment, uh, not simply because of what's happening with COVID, and not simply because of standard sanctions exposure, but because of heightened expectations coming from OFAC uh, and the State Department. Um, I want to I want to come back to you, Gail, on this question of of risk because you spent a lot of time uh, working with clients, working uh, internal to Fin K two Fin on risk uh, and risk modeling, risk management. How, how how do you see sort of the risk based system playing out in this environment? Are there are there tensions in that context? How it plays out? Is, is there is there a better future for how we think about uh, risk management in the AML CFT regime? How, how do you see this uh, playing itself out, Gail? Yeah, thanks, Juan. Um, you know, I think I would relate that back to kind of some of what Eric was saying um, about the OFAC response. So OFAC has come out and said you know, we're aligned with the risk-based approach for sanctions enforcement and sanctions compliance. So if you need to reallocate resources, we understand this is a crisis. And, you know, we'll take that into account as a mitigating factor if something goes wrong. Um, I would contrast that with what's come out of FinCEN on the AML side, which has been um, a little sort of less user-friendly. It's been kind of the expectations haven't changed. We know it's a crisis and it's hard, but you're expected to make your reports and you're expected to meet all of the same obligations, period, full stop. Um, that creates a really challenging situation for all the reasons that we were talking about before. And for, you know, to tie it again to things that Eric was saying about the supply chain, fundamentally, everyone on the customer side's behavior is changing as a result of this crisis. And so, whether it's a customer shifting to completely non-face-to-face -face transactions when you're used to seeing them in the branch twice a week, or whether it's corporate customers that are transacting with new counterparties, um, with new goods and supplies because they've shifted their manufacturing, or with new jurisdictions as they're struggling with their supply chain. Everyone's behaviors are changing. And right now, the sort of old system, the, the status quo system that we have on the AML side is these rigid rules-based transaction monitoring. Um, it hasn't really been a truly risk-based approach. Um, it's been a very much a tons of false positives, tons of defensive SAR filings kind of approach. And so I think there's a lot of hope that this will sort of all come to a head and force us to really take more of that risk-based approach. And part of that, I think, is going to come from innovation in the space. Um, the one kind of encouraging thing in some of the FinCEN guidance that came out, even though it was saying 
you know, you're expected to do the same with less, which seems to always be the, the message on AML compliance. There was also reference back to previous uh, guidance that has come out of FinCEN and out of the combined banking supervisory community in the U.S. about, you know, the, the need to pursue innovation in this space to get to a more efficient place where we can really be more risk-based and have our transaction monitoring systems more finely tuned. And there was also kind of a reference back to other models of, you know, seeking efficiency, such as sharing compliance resources through shared services models or outsourcing models. And I think those are the two pieces that kind of give the the hope for the future. Uh, but at the same time, those those two guidances are, you know, not super recent at this point, a couple years old, I think. And a lot of banks just haven't really felt safe um, pursuing those avenues because they've been sticking to the status quo, even though it's something that frustrates them. And so I think there's a hope on the policy side and on the private sector side that we'll get sort of over that hump where people will start feeling more comfortable um, experimenting with and pursuing these new innovative technologies and business models that are going to help us pursue efficiency and really take a more risk-based stance in this space. Fascinating. Fascinating. I really, um, I love everything you say, Gail, but the uh, the point you're making about the changed behavior um, is really interesting and important because I think rules-based models for transaction monitoring, um, it very they're very difficult to tune to uh, change circumstances and really does lend itself uh, to a lot of the innovation you've talked about, we've worked on in terms of looking at behavioral analysis as the driver, the use of machine learning and AI um, more effectively to look at data and customer behavior and um, and network behavior uh, to be able to identify what, what may be more systemically relevant risk. And so um, really, really good, good points. Eric, before we shift, uh, Gail's already sort of migrated us into the third topic about innovation and hope in this environment. Is there anything else on the policy side you think is, is interesting? No, I mean, I just think, you know, I'll, I'll reiterate Gail's point on this. I mean, I think, you know, as I sort of mentioned, there are, there are multiple layers of tension that exist here. I think as I, as I discussed, there, there's tension seemingly even within enforcement agencies. But there's also a tension between different agencies, um, or I guess in the case of OFAC and uh, and FinCEN, different offices within the same uh, within the same uh, uh, department. So there's just multiple layers of tension. I think it's worth highlighting here. Yeah, and I think one that I didn't bring up that's an important one that we should think about in the context of like the technology and the shared services models is is really the data privacy and data localization stuff. Because a lot of the companies that were sort of a little bit better prepared or on more solid footing when this crisis happened were those that had geographically dispersed workforces so they could shift the work around uh, to compliance teams around the world. But even then, you can run into these issues about data localization, data privacy, and how to really face those. And so that's Another one of those long-standing tensions that's just becoming more pronounced in the current environment. Great point, Gail. Just on, on this point about the, the seeming tension between OFAC and FinCEN on at least signaling on a risk-based approach and what that even means, just to share with the listeners a quick story. And this comes from when, when I was at Treasury, uh, working very closely with Deputy Secretary uh, Sam Bodman, who's recently passed away. Our condolences to his family. But he, he was a great leader 
And at the time of transition, as we were building Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, uh, the one thing he had raised with me and that we were contemplating was whether or not you could fuse OFAC and FinCEN. His reasoning being that there seemed to be you know, convergence of roles from a regulatory perspective and efficiencies just from a management perspective, uh, such that we needed to think more creatively about whether or not OFAC and FinCEN should be merged. We obviously didn't go forward with it. There's lots of reasons why you wouldn't, lots of authorities, lots of Hill interests that would stop it. Plus, we had a lot on our plate in terms of dealing with the transfer of the legacy treasury enforcement agencies to DHS and DOJ and uh, the restand up of, of TFI. So uh, in any event, we didn't do it, but it, it, it always comes back to me whenever we, uh, we talk about is the, the different approaches that we see from OFAC and FinCEN, which ultimately hit the compliance shops and the, um, the regulated industries uh, at the same time. And, and you often wonder if there's better utility in having a unified view and a unified approach from a regulatory perspective. So that's a, a little bit of a historical footnote there for, for listeners. Gail let, and Eric, let's return back then to, to finish off the conversation on the uh, the potential for innovations. Gail, you've already hit on a couple. Eric, I want to give you an opportunity to, to think forward for the listeners as well. The one thing I, I would say is on the digital identity, identity side, I think one thing that's fascinating is that what was, what was seen as sort of a novelty or innovation, you know, and necessary for digital banking, of course, um, is now becoming a necessity, right? And, and that, that reality as to how organizations think about uh, managing for digital identity, not just for existing customers, but for new to bank, new to company clients is really important. And this question of authentication, how do you authenticate and what models are applied? There's a whole technology debate, uh, centralized, decentralized models for how we think about authentication, uh, whether or not customers own their own identity or whether or not institutions should a long-standing debate about KYC utilities or a play out, but ultimately it's a question of, you know, how do you authenticate based on what a person has, their ID, a token, an app, you know, what they know as another category, you know, a password, a PIN, uh, a secret, uh, or what they are, or, what, you know, what a person is, uh, you know, their, their biometrics, uh, or even as Gail was suggesting, behavior, right? So there's a whole whole set of debates happening, but I think we, we're accelerating into a period where uh, digital ID isn't something that, you know, banks and others are exploring. It's now a necessity as to how we think about compliance risk management and doing business in a dislocated environment. Um, so I just, I wanted to throw that out there as we think forward with some innovation. So Eric, let me, let me turn to you and then back to you, Gail, on uh, things you hope to see as, as innovations uh, given the current environment. Thanks, Juan. Yeah, so I'll, I think I'll say one innovation or one innovation I think is, is beginning to pick up momentum. Um, and then one thing which uh, I'm not sure I would call it an innovation as, as much as a kind of potential positive consequence of what I was discussing earlier with supply chain risk. And so I'll start with that one first, and then I'll go back to the innovation itself. Um, the consequence that I, that I wanted to discuss was that, you know, um, I think that to an extent, if you do have significantly shifting supply chains um, as a result of the 
of the tension between China and the U.S. over COVID-19. Um, over the long term, I actually think that that, that may create uh, lower risks, at least from a sanctions perspective, um, for U.S. companies uh, writ large. And I say that because, you know, obviously there's, there's direct um, increase in tension in, sanction, in the sanction space in particular between the U.S. and China right now with uh, new legislation that was just introduced, I think, yesterday over Hong Kong, for example, um, for uh, for entities, uh, financial institutions that um, were uh, have been assisting um, the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong, but there are other areas where Congress, in particular, has been particularly aggressive um, on um, on threatening or, or uh, imposing sanctions on Chinese entities. So, in some ways, when you think about supply chains shifting out of China for U.S. companies. Over time, that decreases sanctions-related risks. Um, come as no surprise to everybody uh, who's listening to this call or this podcast that um, you know some of the supply chain enforcement activity, in particular ELF Cosmetics, was for a company that was uh, uh, there was a U.S. company importing fake eyelashes from China when those eyelashes themselves were were actually um, sourced from North Korea. So over time, there may be this kind of pain in shifting supply chains and figuring out exactly who you're doing business with and who your vendor is in new jurisdictions. Uh, but again, over time, I think that the sanctions risk may uh, may decrease in some meaningful ways um, for U.S. companies that are importing um, products from abroad. That's the first. Uh, the second, which is more of the innovation thrust, I think, that, that you're getting at, Juan, uh, really circles around um, virtual assets and virtual asset service providers. I mean, I think you've seen um, a real uptick uh, in uh, in the last three months or so, uh, and the focus on not just from central banks around the world and regulatory authorities, but also um, from actors in this space, be it Libra, be it Facebook, be it others, uh, where there does appear to be um, an increased momentum for the adoption of uh, virtual assets that are compliant um, with AML CFT regulations, uh, that um, otherwise don't threaten sort of stability of um, of, of central uh, bank currencies and other currencies, um, and I think that this is going to continue probably more quickly than not, in large part because you know these assets allow for potentially delivery point to point of um, uh, of monetary value in a way that you know reduces the need to have in person um, transactions. Uh, transactions where there's a higher risk of, you know, frankly, um, uh, transmission of disease. You know, it's it's a broad point, but I do think that in the same way that digital identity is facilitating, uh, is just picking up pace in part, I think digital assets may also um, benefit to a degree from that push as well. So I think I'll leave it at those two. I think that over time, you'll see a, the change in supply chains may reduce some risks and that digital assets, I think as well, are, are certainly beginning to pick up momentum as a result of this. Eric, great points yep. um, on the digital asset issue. You're you're absolutely right. I think the this is this period's accelerating the idea that digital assets are um, legitimate. New payment systems, new digital payment systems, are uh, not just helpful but maybe necessary in the current environment. And it's I think it's accelerating the the, the acceptable notion that uh, even cryptocurrencies and and crypto environments. Uh, should be explored as part of the, uh, the legitimate financial system. So I think all of that's happening. So appreciate what you said. Gail, again, you, you, you've already laid out some innovations, some issues we should think about. 
Um, any further thoughts as to how the listeners should be thinking about the opportunities in the space? Yeah, thanks, Juan. I think you're definitely right. I got ahead of myself before and was previewing all my points for the six. Always ahead that. of the curve, Gail. You know, Always ahead of the curve. I love it. You know, I try. I try. <laughs> but, you know, I think that even though it's it's tough to talk about opportunities in a time like this, honestly, and it, it can seem really counterintuitive given the economic circumstances, but just like I was saying on the beneficial ownership time that I, or beneficial ownership side, on the policy side, that I think it's, you know, the time to be thinking long-term and thinking about how to build more resilient systems. I think that applies on the private sector side as well and does make an argument for, even though this is a tough time, making some of those technology investments that are going to improve efficiencies long-term and making some of those changes in business model that are going to, you know, help improve efficiency. So by that, I mean two main things. Uh, one is on the transaction monitoring side, really thinking through those technology pilots that are using things like artificial intelligence and machine learning to do real behavioral analysis and give us a more flexible model for thinking about customer behavior and what should be a red flag and helps us move toward a real risk-based system as opposed to that flood of false positives and defensive filing that takes up so many resources. And then the second is on the business model side where we think about um, geographically dispersing teams and looking to outside providers for assistance, um, either on a one-on-one -on -one basis, just to build in surge capacity to your system, or in a way that involves shared costs and economies of scale with other financial institutions. And making both of those things kind of more of the norm, I think, is an opportunity moving forward that could come out of this and, and let us end this crisis in a sort of stronger, more resilient, more flexible place than we began it in. Yeah. Great, great point, Gail. And I, and I think you're right and Eric's right about uh, looking at these systemic vulnerabilities as well as the innovations that were already underway and, and trying to find ways of, of accelerating those. I think one challenge we're, we're going to continue to see in the space is how we think about harmonization uh, across jurisdictions. I think the European Union is trying to do that with its new uh, AML action plan but I think that that's a that's a difficult proposition in the current environment. And what you may end up seeing is some balkanization of billing authorities are to allow for the kind of innovation you're talking about, Gail. But um, all fascinating issues. I think we're going to end it there. But it's been a great discussion. We are going to keep tracking on all of these issues. Of course, likely to have future fincasts focused on key elements of the discussion today. Eric and Gail, I want to thank you for uh, your time today and your insights and all the work you're doing uh, with clients and, and just in general, your thought leadership. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Juan. Thanks, Happy Juan. to be on. Well, that's it for this episode of FinCast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. And thank you for joining us as always. Keep in mind that this is not only available through the usual channels, but we also have FinCast available now on our dedicated online financial integrity network. We affectionately call Dolphin. So if you're interested in looking at Dolphin, take a look on our website and you will find FinCast along with our alerts and other great material uh, on the Dolphin platform. For all of us at Fin, we wish you well, stay safe and healthy in this uh, environment. And we look forward to having you listen to the next FinCast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.